No, uh, thanks for bringing up the fact that I was a teacher. Um, I was actually going to read a text message that I got <laughs> a few weeks ago from Jamie. He says, uh, so if people start calling you Rabbi Wigden, don't be surprised. <laughs> Thank you for not doing that. No one's done that yet. <laughs> but I thought I'd start in teacher fashion today um, with a test. And it's not like a school test. I'm not going to give you the information first and then the test because that's not how things go in real life. And in life, you get the test first and then you do all the learning afterwards. So this is a one-question test, and you're just going to turn to the person nearby you and try to, try to do it in one word. Okay, uh, what is the key to a growing church? Go ahead, I'll wait. If you can't think of an answer, just listen to someone else who shouts something out, and then you can borrow theirs. That's one of the strategies I used to use in school. So I actually uh, have no experience with this. So me teaching it to you is it's just the Lord. I feel like this is what he, he gave me. Uh, and so I'm going to mostly read and uh, just I'm going to read a, a story that everyone knows. It's sort of connected to the Easter story, uh, but I saw it in a different way this week. I had been struggling for a while in terms of trying to just get to the next level or, or do something amazing, of course, and in instantly. And I really struggled with that mentally. I struggled with it emotionally. It's something that happens to me every once in a while. And so I went through that struggle. And on the other side of that, I just felt like God pointed out the scripture that I'm going to share with you tonight. And it relates to church growth. But I think it's, it's a picture of everything that he wants to do in your life. And so the, the scripture that I want, I want to bring you to is in Acts 2. And I, I think you should bring it up on your phone if you have it, because me reading it to you won't have the same effect. So go find it. I'm going to be in Acts 2. Uh, did you, were you happy that I didn't collect your answers and grade them? Ooh, well, I'll, give you, I'll give you my answer. And so I'm going to read in Acts 2. Uh, this is after Pentecost. It's toward the end of the chapter. I'm going to start in verse 42. And the headline for this section of Scripture says, A Generous and Growing Church. And I can stand up here confidently without the experience because this is not a message of condemnation. This is simply a, a statement of things that are in Scripture, things that we're experiencing here at Wellspring. And it's, it's super encouraging to me to be a part of it. And so it says in, in Acts 42 <clears throat> that they devoted themselves to four things, to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And when I read that, when that was read to me, it was just so simple. It, it seemed so simple. To build a church around that, like, we can do that. Like, that's not hard to attain. That's not something you have to strive a lot for. And so that those two verses, four, well, it's one verse. They got it done in one verse. There's four things. Apostles teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. And so I'll just quickly go through those four things. Like the, the disciples were, the 
disciples and the followers of Jesus, they were devoted. That's the first, first important thing. They didn't come and go with the times. Uh, when they were challenged, they didn't recede. I, f- I feel like they had a constant diligence to attend the, these things, to give themselves to these things. And so that, that's the first key is you have to be devoted. You can't be here for some things and not here for others. Uh, you can't be not here. <laughs> you can't be not there, wherever it may be. Fellowship, uh, it's, it's when you urge people to stay with you, to come, uh, uh, to come into your time and space and share that with them. The breaking of bread is a picture of communion, but also sharing meals. It's the same word, <laughs> communion and sharing meals. I'll get to this a little bit in, in, a, in a minute, say more about that. And then the last thing, prayer. Uh, I'm not going to say anything about that right now. I'll come back to that at the end. So those are the four things. Um, but I want to I take you to what I found was the first example of these four things in action. <coughs> and it happened uh, immediately after Jesus was resurrected. And so I'm going to have you guys go to Luke 24, and I'm going to read a story, I'll probably tell part of the story, and then read the, the, the parts that stood out to me. Um, so this is in verse 13, 13, it's the story of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And this story always stood out to me in my mind, it's just one of those stories that's like, okay, that's interesting. Uh, two guys walking down the street, some guy they don't know comes up and is like, boom, roasted. <laughs> and then he tells them all these things, and then he's just going to walk away, and they're like, yeah, we'll pick the story up there. So I'm going to start reading in verse uh, 25. <clears throat> Remember, we're trying to find the, the, teaching, the apostles teaching the fellowship, breaking of bread and prayer. And so... These guys, the two disciples still don't know who this guy is, but he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Like if some dude came up to me, I was walking down the road and said that first off, I'd be like, (laughs) okay. (laughs) But he went on and he said, wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And so you see, Jesus is who it is. He meets them and he starts teaching, the teaching of Jesus, the first apostle. He's planting his church in this story. This is, is to me, how he started uh, the church the way it was designed to function after his resurrection. And so he interpreted for them scripture. He interpreted the prophetic visions that had been uh, had and recorded. And I think that uh, when we first started coming to Wellspring a couple years ago, that was one thing that really stood out to me, um, how devoted the people here were to, to Penn's teaching and to what prophetic words they'd received. It was just something where we, we just saw a devotion to that. It wasn't uh, worshiping Penn, but it was, it was devotion to the teaching uh, because it's, it's, it's doctrine. And so thank you, Penn. It says in verse 28, <clears throat> Then they, they came near the village where they were going, and he gave them the impression that he was going to go farther. But they urged him to s- and said, Stay with us, because it's almost evening, and now the day is almost over. So he we went in to stay with them. And that's fellowship. 
right? It's, it's taking that teaching and it's, it's applying it to, oh, that's what it's going to look like. That's what it needs to look like. And it's, it's, it's fellowship. This next part. In verse 30, it says, It was as he reclined at the table with them that he took the bread, blessed, and broke it. That's communion. He's having his first communion after the resurrection, but he's just sharing a meal. I was I stood up here, uh, I don't know, a couple months ago maybe, and it wasn't in my notes, but I just felt like the Lord led me to say, like, Inviting people to your house and sharing a meal with them is going to become really important in this upcoming season. I think that's still true. I didn't know how true it was because the same language is used for communion, which is this like super spiritual event in our minds and in our souls. We feel that. But it's the same word for sharing a meal with someone. When you invite someone in to share a meal, that same thing is happening. The same spiritual strength is being applied. <clears throat> and it's this breaking of bread that Jesus did that opened their eyes to his presence. It's at this moment when they shared a meal with him that the presence of Jesus could be easily seen by those disciples. It says in verse 31, then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. That's what I want. <laughs> I want to be able to see the presence of Jesus. And that's the thing that I had been striving for before when I was fighting all these battles emotionally and mentally is I was striving to see the presence of Jesus, but I just didn't realize how simple it was. That all I had to do was invite someone over and it would happen. It's the way it happens. And the last thing is prayer. And uh, this, is, this is, I don't have time to spend, but if I did, I would. Because prayer is something that we talk about, <clears throat> and it's something that when we do it, it's just like, it has an effect on us. Rodney, when you started praying in worships, it had an effect on the room. It allowed people to feel the presence of Jesus, to not to see it, but to feel it. And this was the first experience. It says that they said to each other, after, after they uh, broke bread and their eyes were open and they recognized him, it says, but he disappeared from their sight. And so like, being able to recognize that Jesus is in the room and then again that he's gone, it makes complete sense of the things that you experienced uh, along the road beforehand. It says, weren't our hearts burning within us when we were talking with him on the road? Like, that's prayer. Talking with Jesus, that's prayer. That's what will make your heart on fire. That's what will make you feel the presence of Jesus is when you're talking with him and he's talking back to you. And that's what they did all along the road. It was interpreting scripture, interpreting prophetic words. The hospitality and the breaking of bread, that, that, was, that was just what opened their eyes to what Jesus had been doing the whole time. And that's setting their hearts on fire for something. And this is, this is John and Peter, I believe. Um, and so they, like, those guys went on to set the entire world on fire for Jesus. And so prayer is the thing. It's, it's simple. It really is. Um, but what prayer should do is it should show our dependence on God. It should supply hope for the future. And it should encourage those people who desire uh, for the advancement of God's work. And it's that simple. That's what stood out to me. That was the word. The simple gospel. The song has been sung. The idea has been expressed. That's how simple it is. It's the apostles' teaching fellowship, breaking of bread, 
in prayer. And so I want to encourage you, just I know that it, it happens, but it, just keep inviting people over. People you know, people you don't know. They, they didn't know Jesus until he broke the bread, right? He, they were just inviting a stranger into their house, and, and that's, that's how they experienced the presence of Jesus is when they shared a meal with him, uh, not knowing it, that it was him. So, yeah, I, I have a passion for this next season that prayer will be uh, our, our loudest emphasis, that it will be our most effective tool, and that it will be the most reliable response that we have uh, for what is going on in our lives and in the world around us. So I just want to encourage you in those four things. Um, if, you, if you feel like you need, uh, if, you're, if you need to depend on God or you need hope for the future or desire the advancement of God's work, I'd love to pray with you um, and, and just instill hope uh, in a future. So I'll, I'll pray right now if that's all right. Jesus, I thank you for scripture. I thank you that you told the whole story. You told the beginning, the middle, and the end. And we just thank you. I thank you for how clear and how simple your gospel is. Jesus, thank you for, for making community and communion with you so simple. And God, I just pray for our hearts that they would not condemn us now if, we've, if we feel like we've fallen short. Because you can overcome a condemned heart, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the, the experience that you, you made sure we knew about in this generation. And God, I pray now that you would just uh, establish a, a post in, this, in the ground here and in this community of believers, Lord. May we keep it simple. May we trust in you and just be dependent on you and stay in constant communion with you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Was that good? Well, I am an apostle. I don't say that very often, but I am what I am. And I am a teacher. And the first five years that I knew the Lord, I had so much revelation downloaded. I've spent the last 35 years trying to write it out. But this is the apostle's teaching that I follow. And I want you to do the same. This is, this is the apostle's teaching that we want in our lives. Hey, I didn't get a chance to mention it this morning because we had the stage all set up with cardboard boxes and dove, dove, dove cages. And, but do you like the new set? Yeah. Thank you, everyone who worked on this. A lot of people contributed. I just love it. Can we, and with these lights changed, like can we do different, different colors? And wow, how cool is that? And what do you think of this Cadillac of a, isn't that a Cadillac? That's amazing. Anthony built that. And it's air conditioned and has uh, lights in it. So cool. I just love the skill and, and, and that's something he just wanted to contribute to and just do. I just love that. I, lo I love all that 
people do around here. There's patio work that's being done. Every time I come in, there's just a, a flurry of activity. I don't know if you notice the uh, nasty-looking cupboards in the cafe have all been painted, and they just it just looks sleek, looks sharp. Grateful for that. Um, I don't have a sermon tonight. I have I have a bunch of ideas. Can I just do some random, some potpourri? We'll just call this not a sermon. It's Kava. It's just potpourri. It's a guy thing. We like potpourri. Right on the back of the toilet, there's potpourri. Well, it's Easter season. One of the reasons we know it's Easter season, every Easter season, uh, there's news articles about the Shroud of Turin. And they come up. It's a perennial thing. It's like Groundhog Day. It just comes up, and you just know, okay, it must be Easter. And the scientists are talking about the Shroud, uh, that they've tested it, and how authentic it is or how unauthentic it is. Have you seen it? Do you know? Do you know? It just every year. This time of year, it comes up especially. And, uh, and then there's Catholic friends of mine who uh, people have gone to Turin who were terminally ill, and they, they believed that they got there and they saw the shroud that they would be healed. And some of them have been healed because uh, their faith was released, not because of the shroud having any special properties, healing properties at all, but... Uh, it's surprising what happens when people release their faith. But uh, the scientists say all kinds of things, and there's books. There's quite a stack of books, but 1978, by the way, I misspoke. This book I started writing, writing in 1980, not, not 1978. 78 is when I met the Lord, and um, that's when the shroud really became big and, and came out uh, as a really um, novel thing. People were wondering if this really was uh, pictures of Jesus. Do you know what the shroud looks like? Do we have a slide? Couture, uh, if you could put, it's, it's, a, it's about a 15 or 16 foot long piece of cloth, and it, and it has marks on it, but when they x-rayed it, they reversed it, it looks like a man. I don't know what you can see in that. That is, that's, uh, so it, it's burned, and so these are patches, cloth patches on the right and on the left. Look in the middle, you see it looks like a man's face with his arms crossed at the waist. And this is the back, the reverse side of it. And what they said is that when they, they, they wrapped Jesus in this. And when he resurrected all that light and transferred into the, into the cloth and burned his image. And there's blood stains. And, and, and so that's what that is. It shows the, the face. This is a reverse, this is like a, um, a negative, a positive of the negative, or a negative. Well, that's not it there. That's, that's a painting based on the Shroud of Turin, because it's, it's really, so they're saying this is what Jesus looks like. So this is the face, and what they've done is, if you, when you go to Italy and you see the, the Shroud, it doesn't look like this. It's, it's, it's cream-colored cloth with muffled impression, but when they photograph it and they reverse it, they get someone that looks like this with a beard, a broken nose, and some blood coming out of the top of his forehead. And a beard. And it had nail prints 
the, the shock was the nail prints were in the wrist rather than in the palms of the hands. And the theory was that uh, the, if it went through the palms of your hand, it wouldn't hold you on the cross. So there's a couple bones in the wrist that you could nail in between those bones and that would hold you on the cross. Um, is there another slide, Katura? Or is that it? That might be it. Well, that's the, and oh, there's a, there, they, the newest technology is they have a, a 3D image made from uh, one of those 3D burners, or what, what do they call them? A, yeah, a 3D printer. Oh, that's, that's, so that's the head, that's the hands. See where the white spot is, is where they think the nail went in, then you see his legs. Show us the 3D printing. This is the latest, what they think that shroud reveals. One author, this is like one of the latest books that come out. They said that what they think happened is this. This is the, 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 the thesis of the book, was that when the disciples ran into the cave, they saw the shroud it was so vivid to them, that's what they said was the resurrected resurrection of Jesus. It wasn't that they saw him appearing to them. It was the, the shroud, the outline of, of him that convinced them that he was alive. And so that was, that's, they take up a whole book just to say that. So they've done all these tests. I remember back the Vatican paid for a test, which was a risk because of it. You know, showed up in the test that it was a forgery. Then, you know, they've had this thing in glass. It's, it's been a relic for many, many years in the Catholic Church. So they said, we'll pay for the test. And they, they carbon dated it. And they, they did all kinds of tests. And they found pollen, pieces of pollen from flowers that are only found in, in uh, Israel. And so a lot of people believe this. Movies are, are based on this. Uh, uh, all kinds of evangelical movies started coming out and showing that the, the holes went through the wrist rather than through the, the palm of the hand. So I'm, I'm a brand new believer, 1978, and this is big, big news. And it bothers me. It bothers me because it feels like the way it's being put on us, it's, it's, it's something that we must believe in. And it's being put on us uh, the same way that they put on a shrine or a relic or an idol that we must believe in it. So it kind of bothered me. And, um, and the, all, uh, the other thing that bothered me about it is that all the books and the articles put real strong emphasis on what the scientists say, but every article diminishes what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John had to say. So they have to put down that. That's, that's not proof of anything, but what the science, what a scientist says is valid, is proof. And, and I just, balked at that kind of thinking. And that's still out there today, even now. So let's go to the scripture. I, I, I said, Jesus, there must be a way from scripture to show that this thing is not legitimate. And so I began searching and I went into the four gospels looking at the resurrection story to see what I could find. And I found several things. Why don't we go to John chapter 19, beginning in verse 38. Said after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate 
that he may take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and he took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who had been the first to come to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds. And they took the body of Jesus and they bound it in strips of linen with the spices as the customs as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden was a new tomb, which no one had been laid. So they laid Jesus, because the Jews' preparation day for the tomb was nearby. So what's interesting about this is they bound them in the tradition of the Jews, or in the custom of the Jews. Well, the way Jews buried people was on the custom of Egypt. So they would take a mummy and they would take strips of linen rather than a big cloth. They would take strips of linen and wrap him like, um, like an embalming process with spices to keep the body from uh, smelling bad. And they would do this out of affection. And they use, notice it says strips of linen. This is one big piece of cloth. This is saying strips of linen with the spices, 100 pounds of myrrh and aloes. And it's not the aloe, aloe vera plant, it's aloes. It's a serious spice, uh, really strong odor, really strong smell, it's intentional. But the scientists never mention, here they are looking for microscopic pieces of pollen, but they never mention 100 pounds of aloes and myrrh. Completely omiss, omiss it from their study. So I thought that was interesting. Okay, they, they're strips of linen. And, and Lazarus is the closest example. That's also found in, in John's gospel. Lazarus comes out of the grave, and he's bound in strips of linen, and they say on, on, you know, to loose him. The idea is that it's, he, he looks like a mummy rather than one big piece of cloth. Um. Go with me to John chapter 11, verses 43 and 44. Uh, listen to this. This is interesting. And when they had thus spoken and cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. He said, uh, he was bound hand and foot with grave cloths. And his face was bound by a napkin. And Jesus said, loose him. So it's two different materials, two different kinds of cloth. One is strips of cloth, grave cloth. And the other is a napkin. And when you look up the word napkin, it has to do with a sweat cloth. And it was, it was a way that they did it. They, they, they used a different material. We would call it terry cloth. It's absorbent, highly absorbent. Watch this. Go with me to Luke or um, John chapter 20, just a couple pages away. John 20. And look at verses 3 to 7. Peter, therefore, went out and the other disciple... They're going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple, he's referring to John, writing about himself, outran Peter. Talk about competitive. And came to the tomb first. I just want that, my gospel. And he's stooping down, looking in, and saw linen cloths lying there. So strips of linen again, that's linen cloths. Yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb and saw linen cloths lying there, 
and a handkerchief that had been around his head, lying, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. You can't produce this one piece of cloth. You can't produce it because it's, it's several pieces, including a terry cloth, a sweat cloth, as actually it was described. Jesus was so bloodied and, and, and out of affection uh, for him and, and the way they say they did the same thing with Nazareth. They wrapped his head in a handkerchief that was separated. It was a separate piece of material on him and a separate piece of material folded from the strips of linen. It, it's just an entirely different piece than what we're seeing in the Shroud of Turan. Now, if you go to John 20, verse 7, um, Jesus appears to the disciples and he says to Thomas, now Thomas, Thomas missed the prayer meeting and that goes back to what Jared was saying, don't miss the prayer meetings. I'm hungry for prayer meetings starting as soon as Easter is over, we're going back to prayer. I'm, I'm booking a whole bunch of prayer meetings at the DH. We'll do late night, early morning, we'll do all kinds of prayer meetings. I need it, I'm hungry for it. I think, uh, I think we're ready for it. It's been j since January since we've had that pattern of prayer. I'm going to come up with every kind of prayer meeting we can come up with and just launch those. I'm hungry for that. Thomas missed the prayer meeting. And for that reason, he was, he was out of, outside the group. He comes back. And imagine coming back and all your buddies, you've been camping together for three and a half years. They're all there. And, they, and they're filled with joy. When he left, you could feel the, the mourning, the grief in the air. And now there's joy in the air. You can feel it. He comes in and he says, what's going on here? They said, Jesus was here. Jesus just walked through the wall. The living Christ stood in our midst, talked with us. And, and Thomas is, I don't know where he got this. He said, no way. Unless, I, I, I can't accept that. Unless I can put my finger in the hole in his hands. Put my hand in the hole in his side. I will not believe. And what's amazing about that is eight days go by before Jesus comes back and steps into the room again. Walks through the wall and steps. That had to be the longest eight days in that man's life. It had to be, in, it had to be the most torturous ten days. Can you imagine you're sitting there for eight days and everyone else is worshiping and joy-filled and their countenance have changed. They can't wait to get up in the morning to pray and talk to Jesus. And you're sitting there in a funk with this rain cloud over your head because you refuse to believe. Eight days. That's a long time for you to be the odd man out. Everyone else is enjoying fellowship. Everyone else is free from the the grief, and you're stuck there, and you don't know what to do. And it's, it's his friends. I mean, he should have believed them. And Jesus steps in the room and walks up to Thomas. And this, this should give you Holy Ghost shivers here. Walks up to Thomas and says, Thomas, put your finger in my hands. In other words, Jesus was listening. Put your finger in my hand. Reach up here. Put your hand in my side. Thomas must have just completely imploded. Not just at the revelation that, uh, of the living Christ, but that Jesus heard him, saw his ob objections, said, blessed are those who don't believe or, or, or don't see and yet they believe. 
I think that's where we are. Uh, most of us would love to see a vision of Jesus, would love to have Jesus come walk into our now. But he's saying here, he's saying, you know, it's better that you don't have that experience. It's better that you just believe. And of course, believe your friends. They, they had an experience. When I looked up the word hand, when he says, stretch forth your hand and put your finger in my hand, look up the word hand here, and it says the part you catch with or the part you grasp with. I've never grasped anything with my wrist before. That'd be painful, to grasp a ladder or catch a, catch a baseball with your wrist. I don't think so. Hand is hand, and, and Jesus... People who I believe have seen the living Christ say that when they, they look in his hand, they can see a three-cornered star-shaped hole that you can look right through his hand, the size of a quarter, that, that is still a hole. He still, Jesus has his body. The, his body didn't decompose. He has somehow a power. Uh, God gave a power to resurrect his own body. So he has the same body. The same scars are in his forehead. The same scars are in his hand. The same scars are in his side. The same scars are in his feet. It's his body. And someday we'll all get a new body, get a resurrected body. In fact, when you die, you'll have your body as well. And we'll be able to recognize each other until we get a new body. So as a young disciple, I just believe that I can read scripture and solve any mystery, solve any conflict, any, anything I was going through, I can look to scripture and find it, and it solved it for me. The final thing, the, the final thing that sealed it, Isaiah 52, verses 13 and 14 says, Behold my servant, or behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high, just as many were astonished at uh, we're astonished at you. So his visage was marred more than any man, in his, in his form more than the sons of men. Jesus was marred by Calvary, by the cross, more than any man. He didn't look the same. He didn't look, when I looked at the scars and the, the whips on the back of the shrouded fan, it looked like someone took some, maybe some some spaghetti and and hit the back of him, you know, just a few little lines. Jesus was flailed alive with a cat of nine tails. Probably um, Mel Gibson said that what he did when he created the, the movie called The Passion of the Christ, he said, even as graphic as that is, it's nothing compared to what he thinks really happened. And I believe that. I think that's true. You hear a lot these days about the cross. Uh, I talked to our young discipleship group, and I asked them, since Bob Sorge has been here, is the word cross, just the word cross, has that become new for you? And it had. It came alive, come alive for many people. The cross for me, I'm switching now, I'm just going off from the, the shroud onto some other things. The cross for me is, is not two pieces of wood. If you look around, we don't have a cross here. Uh, I almost had one built for when Bob was here because I knew he was going to be teaching that. We don't have a cross on our roof. We don't have a cross on our door. I don't wear a cross. Um, I'm not opposed to jewelry. I'm not opposed to any of that at all. And I'm not opposed to it as, an, as a symbol for our faith. Um, but there's several things. Uh, 
people from Mennonite background, usually their buildings don't have crosses. And I think that might be an aversion to Catholicism where there's crosses on everything. And it might be a reaction to that. That's possible. But I, I've been in a lot of Mennonite churches. Ours was a Mennonite church. We just didn't have crosses. We might have a bowl with a basin with a towel laid on it as a symbol for who we, who we are. But I think what happens is when you say the word cross, many people, the mental picture that is created right away is two pieces of wood. And I want that to be changed for people. When we say cross, you don't think of two pieces of wood. You think of a man loving us so much that he hung on the cross by his own volition for six hours. I want you to see the cross as, as what happened in Gethsemane where he endured mental oppression so that we don't have to have mental oppression. I want you to see the cross as Jesus being uh, tied to a post, stripped naked and flailed alive to purchase healing for us. The whole, the whole thing is the cross. It's not two pieces of wood. I don't see it that way. When someone says the cross, I don't think of two pieces of wood. I think of love. I think of action. I think of what he did to, to show that he cared, to show that he wanted to, to, uh, to relieve us of sin, of suffering, mental oppression, and physical ailments. Jesus did that. That is the cross for me. Billy Graham was preaching, and he was always preaching the cross. He would use that language. But he found that most people, when he said the cross, they had no idea really what he was talking about. And he was struggling with that. And he was trying to, you know, the, the line where Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. He was trying to make that real for his generation, make that fresh. And one day he shocked an audience by, he said, let's rephrase that. Take up your electric chair and follow me. And he was, it was for shock value. It was to try to get them. It's a place of crucifixion because it's become so part of our language that we, it's reduced its impact. Take up your electric chair and follow me. When I think of you and me taking up our cross, it has to do with doing something that you don't want to do, that's hard for you to do, that maybe even is painful for you to do, but you do it because you love the Father. You do it because you want to please him. It may be forgiving somebody who took advantage of you or abused you or neglected to do what they said they would do. And you've had to forgive. You've had to forgive, and that was painful for you. That is, in a moment, a snapshot of taking up your cross, serving someone or doing something for someone that's really inconvenient and it's hard and it's costly. But the reason you do it is because you love God and you know he's looking. That's taking up the cross. Anything that you do that, that, that most of it isn't going to involve physical suffering, but it may be emotional suffering, where you, someone, you have to confront someone, and it's really hard. You lose a night's sleep over it, but you need to confront them because you care about them so much. That's a snapshot of taking up your cross to follow him. Staying in a difficult relationship that is costly emotionally, that is taking up your cross and following him. And it shows up. It shows up in so many different ways. When the Passion of the Christ came out, one of the things that they were concerned about is they were going to blame Jews again for murdering Jesus. Because there's a whole period, I remember even, even when I was a, 
unbeliever, I remember hearing people blaming the Jews for killing Jesus. They completely missed the message. The message is Jesus died voluntarily. Jesus was a mur murdered. He laid down his life. He said, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down. I think that's the message that's missed in the whole thing. I remember watching The Passion of the Christ and uh, uh, being so surprised at what Mel caught about that because it was so subtly. It wasn't like a, a big pronouncement. But there's one of the scenes in the Bible where, or in the movie where Jesus is carrying this heavy, heavy cross. He can hardly do it. He's lost so much blood. He, it's heavy. He's carrying it. They're whipping him while he's carrying it. And his mother, Mary, is, is tracking this whole thing. And she's trying to get to him and can't get to him because of the crowd. And she's, uh, John takes her down these narrow streets to get ahead of the crowd to finally be able to get to Jesus. And there's this little flashback of uh, Jesus as a child falling and Mary as a mother picking him up. And then it, now it's that motherly instinct to want to hold him and comfort him and help him. And she gets to Jesus. Finally, she gets this moment, a brief moment, to finally get to her son who's suffering unlike anything she's ever seen before. And, and he's so excited when he sees her, he says, Mother, I make all things new. There wasn't any self-pity. There wasn't any poor me. He was excited at, at, at taking up the cross. And then Mal does this masterful little thing. It's so subtle, you can hardly catch it. But, but after he says that, he stands up, and he actually hugs his cross and kisses it. There's an affection with that that is so powerful. Uh, one of the reasons I have a hard time with Easter services or Good Friday services, maybe it is more accurate, Good Friday service, is they often feel like funerals. They want you to feel sorry for Jesus. <laughs> Jesus isn't feeling sorry for Jesus. It's not a case of reliving the, the gore or reliving, reliving the sadness, although all that was very much, it, it was, it looked like a failure. The cross really looked like a failure. I want us to think about it to be able to draw love from the cross. I remember as a young Christian wanting to experience Jesus in a real tangible way. He stepped into my apartment one time. I didn't see him with my physical eyes, but I saw him with the eyes of my heart. It was very real. It changed my life. The whole thing lasted 10, 15 seconds, but it changed my life. I, I felt like I had lost something in my relationship with the Lord, and I needed him to step back into my now to show me that he loved me, present tense. I knew he loved me before I knew him, and he did that, but... My devotions weren't all that great. I was slipping in my disciplines. I had gotten into legalism, and uh, I, I, I was trying to earn his affection by doing, 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 and I wasn't doing very well. I'd do nine things right and one thing wrong, and it would scrub the nine. And, and I just needed Jesus to assure me that he loved me. And, and uh, I also was going through a, an extreme battle of fear and depression. And, and so I, I was asking him, will you show me again that you love me? And to me, that meant a prophecy or a miracle 
or him stepping in, a, in some visible way into my apartment because there are the ways that he showed me before. And I drew a lot of love when I get a prophecy where Jesus mentions you and mentions your name in a prophecy. Your heart does somersaults. And I wanted that experience again. I wanted the euphoria of, of, of being beloved again. I'd seen great answers to prayer, and, and now I felt like that wasn't happening. And so, Jesus, show me again that you love me. And the way he answered that was so powerful. I felt like the Holy Spirit was leading me to do a study. Jesus didn't walk through the walls of my house. I didn't get any goosebumps. I didn't have any Holy Ghost meltdown. I didn't have a prophecy. I didn't have a healing. I didn't have a special miracle. It seemed like all of that was taken from my life for a period. I didn't feel his presence for a long time. But I felt like the Holy Spirit was leading me to, to look for a verse where it says that Jesus loves me. And I was going to look for that verse and wrap my heart around it as, and just draw affection from a verse that says he, he loves me. And, and that, that, would, that would be the, the way that I could do it, to take that as a promise from him. So I started going through the New Testament, and I, as I'm going through, ran, you know, very quickly doing a search at a big Strong's Concordance, and I'm doing a search, looking for one verse that says he loves me. And I couldn't find one. There weren't any. And then I noticed something. I noticed, I noticed that in the Old Testament, it always, when it pointed to God loving us, it always pointed to the crossing of the Red Sea. That that was the moment that he said, I love you. And, and all the tenses of every time that uh, there's any reference to God loving the children of Israel, it was past tense. Not present tense. I wanted a, a present tense, I love you word that I could wrap my heart around, and I couldn't find one. It was all past tense. In the Old Testament, it pointed to the Red Sea deliverance from Egypt and says, that is all the proof that you'll ever need to know that I love you. And when I went through the New Testament, I'm doing a study to try that verse. I'm trying to find that one line and I couldn't find out. All the verses were past tense, that he loved. God so loved the world. And there were always past tense. And I, I remember saying, of course you loved me. You loved me when I was new. You loved me when I was a brand new baby Christian. But do you love me now? Can you love me now when I failed, when I'm not, at, I'm not on top of all my disciplines? And I felt like the Lord broke through all of that. And I realized that every time in the New Testament, when it said that God loved us, it pointed to a single in, uh, instance, and it was always the cross. And I found out that anytime I need to feel his love, know his love by experience, it wasn't a trip to heaven. It wasn't Jesus walking into my now. It wasn't a vision. It wasn't a prophecy. It wasn't a healing. It wasn't an answer to prayer. It was just my going to the cross and saying, I know you love me because you did that. And it set me on a course of maturity where I didn't need an experience to know that God loved me. I could go to the cross. I can curl up on my bed and just go to the foot of the cross and say, I know 
you completely love me. I know you love me beyond anybody who's ever loved me before. You love me. Your mercy is higher than the heavens are from the earth because of the cross, because you died for me. I don't need an experience. All I need is have faith. The cross is, he can't say it any louder. He can't say it any clearer. He can't say it any better than the cross. And that set me on the, on a course of maturity that doused my fears. God loves me because he died for me. There's another verse that um, I, it's a troubling verse. It's, this is not very edifying. I'm not sure if this is the right note to end on or not. But in Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 to 20, Paul is talking about his example as an apostle and telling these disciples uh, to follow him as a, as a pattern. And... Um, he says, brethren, join in following my example and note those who walk, who so walk, as you have us for a pattern. For many walk of whom I've told you often and now tell you even weeping, they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is, their, is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. I remember when I went into India and I, God gave me a tribe of people uh, to, to lead and to, to, to pastor and to care for. And I remember struggling and saying, I, I want to be an apostle to them. I want to be a leader to them that would ruin them for any false teacher, that anyone who comes after me, that they would be wrecked. They, they would see selfless love. They would see an example of, 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 of what the Christian should be like, not taking but giving, uh, being willing to sleep on a board, being willing to, to go great distances to love them and care for them and, and make sure that they got the best of everything, um, in, spiritually speaking. And I remember being so conscious that if anyone comes after and comes in and tries to take over this tribe, they're going to have to... They're going to have to live up to a standard of, of apostolic care that will be hard to that be hard to beat. And if they're coming in there and they're selfish and they're they're greedy and they're trying to take rather than to give, it'll it'll show that they're false apostles. Well, Paul's saying the same kind of thing here. He's saying, me and the others who come in here, we are examples of of what it should be like to to serve you and to to be your leaders. And uh, he said, but I've warned you. I've warned you there's people coming after me. And it happened. Even at Ephesus, uh, at Ephesus, he said, there's, I, I warn you with tears. I've warned you morning and night for three years that when I leave, wolves are going to come in. False prophets are going to come in. False teachers, false apostles. And he said, I've warned you about this. And, and then when we read the letter, the seven churches, the one to Ephesus, he, he, Jesus said, you've tested many who say they're apostles and they're not. So it happened just as Paul was concerned. He said, he said I've, to, I've told you, but I'm telling you again with even weeping. I'm, and this is breaking my heart. I'm crying that there's Christians. He's not talking about f people who are not Christians, who are enemies of the cross. 
what a wild picture. What a wild picture is that? These are, these are guys coming through on the circuit, presenting themselves as teachers, apostles, and prophets. He says they're actually enemies of the cross of Christ, enemies of what Jesus did, self-sacrificing, uh, a way of living, a way of living to please the Father, not willing to, for my own comfort. I, Jesus even turned down the comfort of a sponge filled with something that might relieve him of a little bit of pain, and he pushed it aside because he didn't want anything to reduce the pain because he wanted it to be purely pleasing to the Father. He said there are Christians who come through, minister, who are enemies of the cross, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. What a powerful, powerful statement. That can't be the note I end on. Let me see if I can find something here that, something, well, uh, let me do this. This is a little random as well. Everything's a bit random tonight. So uh, you've heard it taught that, that uh, Jesus took your sins and he, uh, he took your sins and he spread them as far as the east is from the west. You've heard it sung, you've heard it preached. Well, there's other verses as well. Job being the first book of the Bible probably ever written. Job had an insight in Job chapter 14, verse 17. He says, my transgressions, my transgression is sealed in a bag. You cover my iniquity. So Job's revelation was, okay, I got this sin. I've given it to God. He puts it in a bag so that I can't see it and he can't see it anymore, but it's in a bag. And that was the first revelation of what God does you know, can you imagine sitting around a campfire and said, okay, I gave my sins to God. He says, well, what do you think he did with them? He said, I don't know. Maybe, maybe he put them in a bag where he can't see them and I can't see them. They're in some nasty bag, some awful bag somewhere. Oh, well, that's a revelation. That's interesting. Then the psalmist comes along, and revelation is always progressive. And so the psalmist comes along in Psalm 103, verses 11 and 12. He says, as far as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. How far is the east from the west? That's a long way. As far as the east is from the west. But the sin still exists somewhere between east and west. So Isaiah comes along. He's the next guy, and he's got a different revelation. And this is Isaiah 38, verse 17. And it says, you have lovingly delivered my soul from the pit of corruption. You have cast all my sins behind your back. Well, how big is God's back? And where is God's back? And, and, but the idea is he's taken them out of sight. He's not thinking about them. So he's taken my sins that I've given him, and he puts them behind his back. But I always think, well, they're still there, but they're just behind his back. Or they're in, the, in some bag. Malachi, he comes along, and he's got a, another revelation. And he says, he will have combat. This is Malachi 7, 7, verses 19. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. And he will cast all our sins in the depths of the sea. So, uh, you know, there's a movie called The Titanic, and it was one of the biggest grossing films of all time. And the producer, the writer, the guy who wrote that and, and developed that, 
movie, the producer makes the money. And so the producer is Robert Ballard, Canadian guy. And he produces this movie. He makes a ton of money, a boatload of money, you could say. And uh, he makes all this money. And so you got so much money you don't know what to do with. And so he decides he'll build a sub, a man-made uh, personal sub, a one-man sub that would be so... The problem with subs is, is they can only go down to a certain depth, and then the pressure of the, of the ocean crushes them like a, like a Pepsi can. And so he invested millions of dollars to come up with a sub for him to sit in that was, wasn't going to get crushed. So the engineering involved, the materials involved, the technology involved is amazing. And he knows that there's one place at the bottom of the sea. It's, it's a certain kind of trench. I can't remember the name of it, but it, yes, you know it. So it's, this tre- it's the deepest place on earth. And so he's going to get a sub down there without being crushed. He's going to do this on live television and everyone can see it. And then he's going to turn on the lights and show people what's on the bottom of the deepest part of the ocean. And so I'm watching, everyone's watching, and Ballard's in there, he's sweating, he's in the, he's in the sub, and, and everyone's wondering whether he'll be crushed on live TV, you know, that's, that'll draw an audience. And so, uh, anyway, he's down there, and finally he says, okay, we've landed, we're on the bottom of the deepest part of the ocean, and we're about to turn on the lights, what do you think we'll see? And I remember thinking, bags of sin. <laughs> he's going to turn on the lights, it's going to be just like all the sin scattered, because there's this prophecy that he's taken my sins, he's put them in the deepest part of the ocean. All re- revelation is progressive. So you start with Job, who's sort of the earliest guy. I, it's amazing about Job is he's the first book of the Bible ever written. That's what everyone thinks. But when you read it, it's brilliant writing. It's brilliant dialogue. They were never stupid. They were never cavemen. They were never Neanderthal. That's a new word in our vocabulary since last week. They were never Neanderthal. These guys are smart, and they have a revelation of God. They know something of God. It's an amazing book to read just for a revelation of God. But his revelation was primitive in terms of what God does with sin. Then Jesus comes. And the revelation changes, and it starts with Paul saying he's taken the transcri- the, uh, a transcript of our transgression, and he's nailed it to the cross. And John says that, First John, he says that he washes them away, and they cease to exist. And so your sins are not behind God's back. They're not between east and west. They're not in the sea. They're not... They're not in the ocean. They're not in some bag. They don't exist again. They don't exist. They've been taken to the cross. They cease to exist. There's no remembrance in heaven. There's no remembrance in heaven. There's no record. It's completely gone. It's been taken away by the blood of Jesus. That if you sin and you ask God to forgive you, then you talk to him about that sin. He has no idea what you're talking about. But the enemy does. He wants to remind you and actually get you to go back in and take something that's been totally removed and make it come back to life again. Remember it again. Feel the shame again. Feel the regret again. Feel the stain of 
of, of that sin again. You have to learn to say, no, that's been taken care of. That's been covered by the blood of Jesus. That no longer exists, and it can't exist in my mind. We have to, we have to get disciplined to say no to that. We're not gonna, we're not gonna be recondemned. Nor are we gonna visit old sins that we've been forgiven for. I won that battle. I'm not gonna go back there and dig that up and bring that out again. It simply doesn't exist. It's been washed away by the blood of Jesus. Which revelation do you like the best? Yeah, Nelson, were you gonna say something, son? Well, blotting's a technique. Yeah. Because there's a verse that talks about him blotting away our sins. And he's also, there's a verse about blotting our names out of the book of life. And so blotting is, is a technique for, if you've done any calligraphy at all or, or write on parchment or anything like that, if you make a mistake, uh, it kind of wrecks the whole thing. There's no white out. Uh, and so what you do is you you take a knife and you scrape the ink away to a certain level. You've done this many times you, in your artwork. You scrape very, very lightly. You scrape the ink away. But even then, sometimes there's a little trace of it. And so you, you take a moist piece of cloth and you, you touch it very gently against that remaining shadow of ink and it lifts it off and it complete, it, it's gone. It's been blotted away. And he's blotted away our sins. They don't exist anymore. But he's also, when they become born again, he writes your name in the Lamb's Book of Life. And the threat in the New Testament is that he could actually blot your name out of the Lamb's Book of Life. And, and so I don't believe in the eternal security in the sense that God doesn't do that while you're sleeping. He doesn't do that uh, to play with your head. We can actually live in a certain way that our names are actually removed from the Book of Life. But I love the fact that he's blotted away our sins. Aren't you? Aren't you grateful for the blood of Jesus? Me too. And that's, that's what we need to celebrate. I want us to celebrate all of the cross, which begins in Gethsemane. And if you have fears, mental oppression, depression, Jesus wants to help you with that. He wants to remove you, remove that from your life. And he wants to do that by, by revelation. He wants to show you how to, how to live above that. Sin and sickness, both of those were taken care of the cross. You can't have one without the other. There are people who are very particular. They say, I want him to take away my sins, but I don't believe he's taken away my sicknesses. It's the cross. It's the cross. It's the cross. It's the cross. And it's not two, two sticks of wood. It's an act of love. And we need to get that in our heart. We need to get that in our kid's heart. Amen? So that's just a random bunch of stuff sewn together. Not even really a sermon, but... Let's stand together. Let's thank the Lord. Can we do that? Jesus, thank you for showing us an example of how to endure something that was painful, that was hard, that was crushing, only because you wanted to please your Father in heaven. That's all that mattered. That you did it for him did it because he was watching. You wanted him to be satisfied. Father, thank you for sending Jesus who willingly submitted to the cross in, in, in Gethsemane at the whipping post and on Calvary. We, we are so grateful. Thank you for seeking us and 
buying us and redeeming us from the hand of him who hated us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for forgiving us and healing us and setting us free. Jesus, thank you for loving us. You can't say it any louder. You can't say it any clearer. Help us to find the discipline of, by faith, drawing deep drafts of your love by going to the cross. Thank you for this season. We could focus on it. We'd be reminded of it. We need it, Lord. Make it real. Give us a fresh revelation, a fresh Easter revelation for every home that's represented here tonight. Every home, every heart, a fresh Holy Spirit revelation of Easter. Do that in me. Do that in us. In Jesus' name. Amen? Amen.